if people are in the pursuit of being the best you know, version of self, we think we can help them do that at work and actually enjoy and hopefully love what they do. And they feel safe and they feel those things. And we can't do that for them, but we think we can help help that and aid that that whole process by giving software, you know, that allows people, those entrepreneur leaders, right, to 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 go out and do the things they want to do. I mean, you know, look, if you ask me, kind of like, what's my mandate? How will I know I did it well and did it right at the end? I want to really believe that I helped leaders build great organizations, right? And you can build one great organization by yourself, or you can figure out how to help right now sixty three hundred organizations be better versions. And that's what we're trying to do. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with Chris Snyder. Chris has an extensive entrepreneurial past over the last 25 years, building and leading five companies, including founding Vox Mobile, an enterprise mobility management service here in Cleveland back in 2006, where Chris served as CEO, growing the organization to over 200 people, over 20 million in capital raised, and tens of millions in recurring revenue. He is an active member in Entrepreneurs Organization Cleveland Chapter as a member of the board, chairs the board of the Northeast Ohio Arthritis Foundation, and was recognized as an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year for his work there. In 2018, Chris founded a growth advisory firm called Impact Architects, where he serves as the managing partner, and in 2019, he began working with 90, a company focused on supporting that same market as Impact Architects by providing company operating system software, a broader topic which we will explore in detail in our conversation today, where he serves as the head of finance and partnerships, sits on 90's board, and helped them recently close on a $20 million investment round led by Insight Partners. This really was one of my favorite discussions so far, as Chris, who is one of the most clear thinkers that I know, has this powerful ability to distill his extensive learnings into very concise, meaningful takeaways as well as speak to his underlying motivations of working with entrepreneurial leaders to create impact, another theme which will come through in spades throughout our discussion today. So please enjoy my conversation with Chris Snyder. So I was thinking about where the best place to start this conversation might be, and I actually want to go somewhere a little bit different than where I normally do because one of the ideas that I've been particularly fascinated by and have explored through this this whole podcast over the last two years now is the the whole concept of a startup flywheel and this idea that to achieve you know sufficient startup momentum such that the broader ecosystem can sustain itself, you need to have entrepreneurs and early stage employees who have been through the the trials and tribulations of company building and emerge successfully. From that, on the other side, in a position where lovers of the game of startups, they are reinvesting in other startups and founding new companies. And I think like the perennially cited example are are these like mafias, which I say in air quotes, but you know, these alumni networks of those companies that have broken through. And you know, you have classically the the PayPal mafia with a legacy of, I don't know, Tesla, LinkedIn, YouTube, Palantir, so many companies. And in my observation, is that the the most analogous situation we have here? If you take stock of Cleveland entrepreneurs and their experiences, is your own company Vox Mobile actually? And so I wanted to start there and actually ask about what you did with the culture at Vox that cultivated entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship and startups in its wake, and how can you intentionally foster more of that? That's a great question. First off, I. I I don't know if what you said is true, but I like it. So I'm going to agree with it. <laughs> so look, I, I think it goes back to leadership styles, right? So it depends upon what you Google, who you listen to. For me, it breaks down to you know, the following. So you could be autocratic, bureaucratic, democratic. You can be laissez-faire leader. You can be a transactional leader. You can be a transformational leader and you could be a coach. And along your journey, you're going to figure out which one you're going to be given the situation. Now, when most businesses start, and just think about a founder and a few friends getting together, and you've been there, Jeffrey, it starts off as we all have to do everything because there's just not enough time for specialization. 
And then somebody along the way becomes more transactional in their leadership. They're going to tell people what to do from this efficiency of time, span capacity to get things to done, right? But at some point, if we stay transactional in that command and control kind of leadership, there is no next layer, right? So the natural move is a company goes from survival in the early stages to sustainable is for the coaching leader to start to start to emerge, right? And that's an investment because now I can't just tell you what to do. I have to give you the context and the reasons and the why about why I need you to do what these things are to do. And quite honestly, this is also when we start to talk about operating systems because I need to give you a framework to coach to in order for you to invest in the company and the people so they can start to scale. And then as, if I do that and I want to move to scale, right? Now I'm just going to talk about your flywheel moment. I have to start to think about transformational because I need you to be able to transcend from that stage of now knowing being coached to being able to coach others. So if I, if I look back and the things that I've, I've invested in, mostly because people invested in me, right? So hopefully we reciprocate the things and kindness that have been done for us along the way is to go to that transformational and put a lot of time into the development of other leaders so that the organization can scale. And quite honestly, so they can scale and so they can do it for others. And there's a ripple effect of impact that can happen. And it takes time and it takes intent, right? And discipline to go invest in people along the way. And so often in the work that I do today, when I meet leaders that have hit a ceiling and they're like, Chris, we can't get from this kind of sustainable to scale. What's our number one issue? You ask them the leadership question, right? Let, let's tell me about your leadership style. What are you doing today? And they often can't give you a title to it like I just ripped through, right? But they actually start to tell you what they do and how they do what they do. And then you can start to discern what type of leader are they being, even if they have an intention of being something different. So if I go back to your question, I think doing that and understanding the leadership and the progression and the investment and pulling people in and really helping them be a better version of self so that they can also do that for others, I think is what's, what's required to have that ripple effect, what's is required to have that alumni that are hopefully out there going, hey, we're doing the right things because someone did them for us. So I'll invest in you. I'll take the time in you because it was done for me. So I, I think we'll, we'll get to talk more about operating systems and, and the work you're doing. But before we do, where does your own interest in, in entrepreneurship and, and company building stem from? Um, <laughs> uh, survival. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, um, I like to say, you know, my, my family history is that uh, you go back to farming, right? And if there's ever a sense of entrepreneurship, it's, it's farmers, right? Like you, you have to figure out how you're going to make this stuff work. The, there's so much that's against you that you don't control. Um, so I grew up in, the, in that kind of environment. You know, quite honestly, my dad was a teacher, vocational education teacher. There was four kids. There was never enough. Like they weren't, we weren't, we weren't poor, poor, but you had to figure out if you were going to have something more to go do that yourself. So it was all those initiatives, everything from selling, you know, the crops that we had to raising animals and selling those to, to, you know, starting a lawn care landscape company. And that was all really need-based. It wasn't vision-based. My vision was going back to kind of like that Maslow's hierarchy of need is if you have, you know, food and shelter, then you're going to think about belong, you know, I'm going to start to think about the other things that get me to hopefully a sense of belonging, right? But I can't think about belonging until I actually have, you know, enough of the things that I need. And so really, you know, entrepreneurship has so much similar analogous to that Maslow's hierarchy of need. So the first part of entrepreneurship for me was just having enough, right? And figuring that out and going, okay, well, if, I, if I, someone's going to pay for college, it's going to be me. So now what am I going to do to make that happen? Because it's not going to happen for me. And what were those things that you started to explore for from there? Um, well, it, you know, the a variety of businesses, man, I, I even I had to stay close to home because the lawn care landscape service was how I was paying for college. That, and I still I needed to be within a, an hour and a half radius to do it. So I went to Ohio Wesleyan because my family grew, I grew up in Marion, Ohio. So it was close enough from a school perspective to get there. But even when I was at school, there was, I needed more, right? So everything from internships to I started a business called Campus Lofts and we built, you know, wooden lofts and so sold them to this campus. And eventually I had distribution to five campuses and it was literally me and my roommates, you know, going, going home over the weekends and, and building wooden beds to ship them out along the way. There was always that sense. One of the interesting things is I went to graduate and people saw my resume and all these different things that I was doing. Um, they're like, well, why aren't you just going to be an entrepreneur at this point? It's like, well, because all the things I don't know, like I'm, I'm, I'm smart enough to know there's so much I don't know. And there's people that have learned it before me that I need to learn from. And, you know, there's I found that even beyond um, beyond you know, working for somebody else, but all the peer groups that, that I've participated in, like EO, 
right? And uh, the SaaS Academy, like there's so much knowledge out there that can be shared that I've been, in a, you know, hopefully a, a lifelong learner and continuous pursuit of other people's wisdom so I can figure that out, you know, with and for myself along the way. Hmm. So I think we mentioned Vox at the at the onset of the, of the conversation here, and you know we can work our way towards the the present with uh, Impact Architects and, and ninety that you're doing now. But you know what was Vox? Tell us a little bit about that story, and you know working in I think to the the kind of culture that that cultivated entrepreneurs to to I don't know graduated if that's the right word from from Vox ultimately. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth giving uh, MCPC some some props here too. So absolutely, I came to Cleveland in 2002 as part of the team that you know helped with the divestiture uh, from MCSI to MCPC. Mike Troublecock and, and a lot of other leaders that have gone in to do a lot of other you know really good things around the area. So while I was at MCPC, I was the CTO and COO, and had a lot of opportunity to think about building more recurring service based businesses other than the traditional technology bar. And one of those businesses that we were believing in was this, this concept of work from anywhere. Like at some point, the endpoint will travel. And we had done so much you know, historical PC distribution. Um, and one of our, our clients that was really kind of into that kind of field service, but wanted to be able to work from anywhere was Diebold. And we had a project with them to take and help develop an application to a BlackBerry. This is dating myself a bit here, Jeffrey, but we were going to write a Java app on a BlackBerry, right? And allow, you know, thousands of these workers to, you know, to work and behave differently. So that kind of set me upon this whole concept of, well, where's the world going? And, just, you know, the power of mobility, again, because this is 2003, four, maybe timeframe, um, was like, oh, wow, there's, there's something here. We won't be, we won't just be sitting in our cubicles doing work. And clearly, I think this is proven out. <laughs> but it was the belief, right? <laughs> that we would be a mobile workforce. And I don't just mean the people who are in the field, I mean all of us, which we kind of are, like we've hit that, that point today. So that kind of inspiration and what we figured out pretty quickly is if it was to stay inside that business, it wouldn't be the same business as it needed to be. And one of my favorite plays is to talk to entrepreneurs all the time and go, you probably have a software or tech enabled business inside your business and we haven't realized it yet. And that making that move, that carve out, carve out that spinoff or whatever we're going to call that, but breaking that out and letting it be something different. Because if it stays underneath the, the weight of the umbrella of all the other constraints that the traditional business has, it can't really go see it. So, you know, Mike and I agreed that it was better served to take that, you know, kind of that mobile division out after we were building it. So in 2006, July, of we, we spun out 15 employees and myself and we began the process of creating Vox Mobile with this mandate that we were going to go figure out how mobile workers were going to behave. And we had a big vision, but we also had just a you know, pending sense of reality on the technology side. <laughs> it was, you know, our, we all get, you know, like 5G and all these types of things we talk about today. If you go back to that time frame, you know, it was text-based transmission. Right, was, that's, that's we early. Were, yeah, we were, <laughs> we were just barely a step above a pager. And so we had, you know, lots of transportation, lots of battery issues and all that to, to try to get from here to there. But um, that was the vision that we really wanted to go help those folks work from anywhere. And, and how, what was the trajectory from, from there of Vox? How did the, the company grow? Where did you, you get to lead it? Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit of funding then give some employee size and those, those types of fun uh, milestones and landmarks. So we did an angel round. Uh, so we spun it off and then it was to go, let's go do an angel round here in Cleveland. And I think it's gotten better. I mean, I shared with you before we started that we, you know, been actively helping some companies raise money, participating as an investor at that stage, uh, going to people and saying we were going to help people to work from anywhere and, you know, the company's Vox Mobile doing these things, there was blank stares coming back, man, everywhere. Like it was like, I don't understand. Tell me again how this works, right? The cloud was not well understood. People hadn't been using it themselves. And, and so it was a bit of a lift to get people to buy in, right, that there was a, there was a there there. Um, now, we were, we were plenty fortunate for having advocates. Um, you know, Doug Weintraub as an example. I think he was chairman of Jumpstart at the time. Doug was an early fan. He had a network of folks. So the, the angel piece at that point was, and it probably still is some today, it's like, who's who and who do you know, right? Who can extend trust? Trust in the entrepreneur, trust in the idea, trust in the market. And so we, we kind of did that first angel round. And then, you know, that, that went well up until 2008. So 2008 was a tough time, I think, for, for most people. Uh, but, you know, for us, it was really difficult because August of 2008, We'd worked on an acquisition. We had a VC out of New York that was funding it. We were acquiring a company that was complimentary to us. And then the markets just all crashed, right? And so 
after six months of working on an acquisition, that fell apart. You know, our bank swept our swept our line. We'd never done anything wrong, but they swept all the cash because they were on businesses at that point in time. You know, we lost our second largest customer. So all those things just kind of collided. And from that point, though, it really was, it was, you know, looking back, it was great that the angels still believed in us because we had to get some more funding from in order to get the company back because of all those events that happened. And uh, we, we got back into the growth cycle really by, you know, kind of mid-2009 again. And we had a good run. And then we did our first round of it our Series C. It was led by Edison Partners. We were probably at that point 50-ish people, something in that neighborhood. I have to go back and look. But we were catching some momentum. Uh, we raised $7.5 million. Um, and then we kept building the business from there. At, at the peak, uh, when I was there, I think we were about 250 people. Uh, we had at one point probably 50, 60 people outside the United States, mostly in Canada. And we ended up, before I left in 2018, we had done three, uh, three rounds of uh, venture-based funding up through our Series C. And it was the premise didn't change a lot. It had to change off of the BlackBerry-only type of model, right? So <laughs> with the invention of, of you know, really the iPhone coming into the business and Android and, you know, most of the applications where it wasn't just, you know, was it was more about assets and applications than it was end users. That was the chase. Like, you know, it was for us to get into those organizations like Caesars Entertainment, and it wasn't just supporting a, somebody's phone. It was supporting all the endpoints, right, with the application layers that run across. As you scaled Vox from, you know, where it was to, you know, ultimately hundreds of people, did your, your interest in operating systems you know, converge at that point? Or, you know, how are you thinking about scale and the actual company building process outside of the nature of the problem you were solving at Vox? Great question. So, you know, my entrepreneurial journey, which I think I've seen a lot in other folks, and you, you got to keep figuring out the next thing, right? It's like, how do I get from here to there? And then if you're in that peer community, you're asking people, your peers, again, who've done it before you, how did they do it? And so being in that moment, I started asking people and you started finding all these operating systems, right? You started finding Vern Harnish and scaling up gazelles, right? You started finding, well, Michael Gerber in the E-Myth scenario, uh, Patrick Lencioni in Advantage, and then obviously there's uh, EOS and Gina Wickman. So we chose the Advantage. So we, we did, uh, we really kind of pulled from Patrick Lencioni's systems and we loved his uh, Five Dysfunctions of Team book and his Death by Meetings, right? And so we were, we were cobbling together kind of all those thoughts at Vox and picking and choosing bits and parts of which ones that served us best. We were also a Jim Collins fan out of the gates with uh, Good to Great. So we started on using some of those tools. We we're an amalgamation of operating kind of a p- bits and parts of operating systems. But that was our, our path was to go then, you know, mm. at that leadership level, again, use those tools, use those books as reference points and kind of try, start to bring together this, this thought of these, these things are really mostly concepts tools, and I don't mean tool like a wrench, obviously, I mean, like, a, you take something, you go, it's repeatable to its outcome, like flywheel, you mentioned to us, the hedgehog concept, the flywheel is the tool, and it's the discipline that gets you that 10x momentum acceleration, right? So we think about yeah. these things that way. But that's where we started doing at Vox. Uh, we were experimenting like crazy. Um, we had lots of good folks that were, you know, at times probably frustrated with us because it felt like book of the month and shiny objects, because <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to figure it out, right? Versus uh, yeah. just going to one system. I guess it might be worth a, a quick detour into just at a high level what it operating system is and, and how you think about those. Yeah, let's do that. So, so every every organization has an operating system. You either have an accidental operating system or an intentional operating system, right? The operating system is somewhere between four to who knows ten different um, components and how you think about your business. You have a vision aspect of it, right? You have to know where you're going. Like when we think about everything that's directional in its nature, that could be your core values and Simon Sinek speak, it could be your just cause, right? It's a uh, Jim Collins, it's your BHAG, right? Uh, but that's the big picture stuff. That's the infinite C, it's the infinite game kind of model you're playing. Um, that's your vision. Well, then you have to get to the execution. Like how are we gonna know we're winning? Like we have to start keeping score because if we don't keep score, right. we're just practicing, right? So then we go, okay, let's, can I see out three years? Can I do a three year outlook? Can I do a one year plan? Can I do a quarter that I'm in, right? And that starts to get to the execution side of the model itself, right? And we go, well, if we're going to do that kind of in those timeframes, well, then I have to really start running meetings, right? Most of us don't like meetings. We don't like meetings because they weren't run effectively. They were wasting our time. So we don't want you know, more meetings. We want less. So the operating system brings in a cadence of meetings and more of the Lincioni approach to meetings. We think there's five kinds of meetings. Each meeting type has a purpose, right? And so it's agreeing to those. We're going to have weekly meetings. We're going to have same page meetings. 
we have strategic meetings, we have client meetings, right? But you, you agree to a structure of that within, inside the operating system. And that gives you kind of reference points and commonality of language, especially as you start to go from that, hey, I went from su- sustainable to scale. I got to have more of that because I can't just be in the command and control and tell everyone to do today. I need people to have a system to be accountable to. Because Jeffrey, people don't want to be held accountable. Uh, this is, uh, I always find this interesting because people will be like, we just need oh, to that, hold them accountable. That is interesting. They, no one wants to be. No one wants to be held accountable. I want to be accountable to the situation, to the structure, and I want to have agreement-based leadership. I want you to set the expectations. I want to agree to them. I want to own them. Now, if I can't behave inside that structure of that system that you're setting up, well, then sure, you got to hold me accountable. But the right structure, which is another part of the system, right, is you know, EOS speak is accountability chart. Some people call it responsibility chart. It's more than an org chart because it brings in the details of what your agreements are. And then those sides of the agreements are also going to be things like one to three metrics for every one seat that you've agreed to. It's a quality metric, a quantity metric, some combination therein, right? So that's also another part of the operating system. Uh, another part is how you think about data, right? Like database decisions for operations at scale. I mean, it's just required. I don't care if you call it OKRs, KPIs, metrics, right? They're all about the same. It's about having leading visibility into where you're going to go and how do you instrument the business along the way. And so we'll compartmentalize that. And then we start to set those pieces up too so people can understand, you know, are we winning? Are we learning? And that's all going to come from the data side itself. One of the most fascinating things that we didn't do at Vox well, and this was an EOS thing that I learned, was really how to solve issues. Like we would have the moment where you'd give me the issue and we'd sit around and we would discuss and we would discuss and somebody would politic and tell us all their passionate moments, right? And then you'd, you'd sit there and you spend 60 minutes and you might get something progressed to maybe a solve and it's two items and it's just not enough, right? There's not enough time in the day as you're trying to do this. So the, this approach to actually being able to say, I can clarify, identify the issue itself. I can spend time on discuss. That's really about giving your facts, giving you know, your experience. Don't conjecture, don't politic along the way, right? And then let's understand how we get to solve and solve has a destination. It's not, it's gotta be an endpoint, right? So we like to say things like, if, if you know, Jeffrey, if that's to be true, what you know, what's required, right? And then get the person to really articulate because sometimes we can't. Um, so issue solving is is one of the components in the operating system as well. And there's a couple different approaches, but quite honestly, I think uh, EOS does a really good job at, at that piece as well. And then you're at, at the end of all this, right? You're going to get into the human side, the people side, right? Which is more than just structure. It's how do we actually not only lead folks, how do we get them to understand what our core values are. How do we get them to really participate at the level that's important to them in the business and align to the direction that you're going? You know, people, people call it HR, that's fine. But HR is often misunderstood as just compliance. And it's not the investment side of the human, which is really where the operating systems can help when you're trying to chase scale. Is know that you're getting the right people in the right seats, but you're investing in them too. And they have some kind of programmatic approach to, to that investment. So at, at Vox, you're, you're playing around, experimenting with a few of these different systems and, and trying to, you know, figure it out as, as you go. I'll, I'll ask you, you know, the, the question you're asking maybe yourself at that point, like what, how did you keep score? What did success look like? What, what was the, what was the, where were you trying to, to go ultimately with Fox? So I think it's got probably a few, few parts to it, right? So I'll personalize the first part and then I will probably go to some other places um, including the investor side. So the personalization in that moment as an entrepreneur, I was just chasing impact. I wasn't chasing an outcome, right? I was trying to figure out how do we have the greatest impact into all aspects that we're participating in, our local community, like the jobs that we're building, uh, the customers that we're serving, right? Those were things that were really important to me. Uh, but it wasn't like, you know, I had a number where I was like, hey, if we get to this, I can have a billion dollars. That was not That was not it, right? It was like, there has to still be this, this, this feeling and this knowing that we're making a difference along the way. And as long as we're doing that for ourselves, our, our customers, and then obviously our shareholders, then that, then that feels good and that feels right. I've got plenty of folks that I've talked to, who they, they're different. They have a number. They're chasing a billion dollars. They're chasing whatever they're chasing, right? And it's, it's a different set of outcomes. So that wasn't, that wasn't my personal aim or game in that scenario. It was also to see and be aware that how far can I take the business and I want it to be sustainable without me. Like I really, you know, it's a, you see this often when the, uh, when the entrepreneur or the founder exits, the building or the business itself just, it just collapses, right? It doesn't have the ability because we didn't get it to a place where there was enough people inside that business that really understood it, that they could continue the mission without someone. I do believe entrepreneurs have capacities, but they also have interest. 
At one point in my career, I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if you realized that you could take a business from zero to a billion? And then you start to understand the difference required along the way, right? And as, as an entrepreneur, I, I don't really love operating the business. I just, I just don't. That's not, where, that's not where I get. I think other people do that really well and they should do that. But if, if there's something that's around the growth and the gain side of it and figuring out the right changes in the model, that's where I'm energized. That's where I feel like I'm being the best version of self. Um, so it's also getting that awareness of like, where, where are you going to be best suited to take the business? And at some point in time, be prepared that maybe you're not right for the business anymore. And that's okay, right? The business, hopefully, if you did it well and did it right, it's sustainable without you. And you can step away and go do the next thing that you need to do that continues to make the impact you're looking to make. So that's, that's my selfish version of, of you know, where, what we were trying to achieve and where I was trying to go with it. I think you can then start to go to lots of other places. You know, I, I listened to your podcast with, with uh, Ray and Hardick from Jumpstart Ventures this morning. Uh, you brought up like the, the drive capital, like they keep track of how many millionaires they've made. Mm-hmm. Right? My, my moment in time listening to that, Jeffrey, was what about the leaders we created? Can we put, because yeah. that to me is more important than the millionaires that we did. Because those, those folks may not be millionaires, but they have the skill set and the ability to go make an impact in our community and they can help build and be operators of other businesses too. And I think that to me is a, is a again, personal, a better level of scale and impact than, hey, we created some millionaires. Because we did, but at the same time, I don't know that that's how I would personally measure it. Yeah, no, I, that resonates with me. I don't know, there are a lot of more ecosystem challenges to surmount with just access to capital and things generally. But I, I know that, that that resonates very much. Yeah, well, I, you know, we, we could spend some time on this, right? Because I don't think capital is our limiter. It's, there's, it's a limiter. I don't think that's the limiter. I, I think it's actually the awareness to the entrepreneurial community here in Northeast Ohio that, that inside these businesses are so many other great businesses that can be emerged and pulled out. If you think about the, 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 the sheer volume of what's required, we did this with, uh, you know, Aaron Grossman's business, right? When we spun off an employee stream. And, you know, if you've, Aaron's been really kind to me publicly, he's made statements around he would have never done that without Chris Snyder because, you know, he and I have been long-term friends and we were talking one day and he's like, hey, I've got this thing. I want to do this thing, but I don't think we can do, you know, couldn't do it this way. I was like, well, Aaron, you can. Like we did it at Vox. You can pull it out. You can set it up. It's already got customers. It's already got some employees. You could go find some good operators, leaders here. We'll find the capital. But those are like, you know, the, the, the whole, you think about how many people can start something in a garage without customers, without an understanding, without market fit versus all those businesses that sit inside companies around Northeast Ohio. I think we have an opportunity. I'm working on two or three of them right now to help entrepreneurs do that because I think it's so much of a, of a, I don't know, more foundational path. And then the capital shows up confidently, right? Because you've got, you got something that's already got 10 customers and, and some success and, and, and an entrepreneur that guides it like Garen Grossman on top of it. So anyways, that's, I think that's what we lack. I think we lack the understanding that you can do that and there's a structure and a process to do that with great confidence. And what does that process look like? How do you, how do, you do that you know, in, a, in a repeatable, reliable way? And, and maybe that's a good segue to, to speak to some of the work that, that you're doing more recently with, with Impact Architects and, and kind of the, the productization of these operating systems. Yeah, well, so I'll just... It's a concept. It's not been proven yet, right? So I'm, I, I live in a world of testable theories. <laughs> I like it, though. <laughs> I live in a world of testable theories until I know more, right? That's the way I approach it. Um, so my, my concept with this, we start workshops, right? Like we go to the, the entrepreneur communities, the EOs, the YPOs, the, you know, because even some of these are not just, you know, EO-sized businesses, they're YPO-sized businesses. And so, but we show them a, through a workshop kind of a framework to start to think about and know that there is a community out there of capital, so, because what happens with these, these businesses is, right, they're making good EBITDA. They're funding it, but they don't want to put all of that at risk, right? So it's slowly growing. But if they had another $2 million, right, and they already have customers and, and the concepts beyond just a whiteboard, right, then, then if they knew how to do that. But otherwise, the list seems like distraction. It seems heavy. It's all those things that they don't have someone who's done it before tell them how to do it. So, but I think there's a method to that, and we could, we could teach it and coach it in a workshop, and then you get people to raise their hands and say, Jeffrey, I'd love to do that. You know, I've got one I'm trying to work on. I told you about the other day where it's a really good company who wants to get a, a SaaS product to do a very specific thing. And, you know, in session, they basically say, hey, that sounds great. Why don't you help us do that? Because we have the funding. We have the customers. We don't really want to run the, and, and figure out all the software. Right. And those are moments in our opportunity to say, what could be better? <laughs> like, 
You've got the yeah. clients, you've got the infrastructure, you've got capital. You don't have all the capital because they don't want to put all their capital at risk in that moment, right? But they can be an awesome place to jump off from. So I think we do some of that in intro, introductions at scale through workshops. And we, you know, we start to come out with kind of, this is the three to 10 steps you have to think about, get yourself along the way. And there has to be people like you, I, others that are, have been in those places before that can then say, we'll raise our hand to help either operate, coach, advise, right? To make sure the entrepreneurs come through that process at, at the right, right place and approach. Hmm. So working our way towards the, the present here, you know, how, how does the Vox story end? And you mentioned trying to constantly figure out what comes next. You know, how, how are you thinking about that at the time and, and what ultimately transpired? Yeah, so I think the, <laughs> the Vox story ends with, I think, frustration on my side, on the investor's side, because, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of customers at the end of 17 and the market didn't show up. The mobile device management market never, the, the software side showed up, but the actual mobile management market never came. The Gardner stuff, I mean, we built a global joint venture. I was in like five different continents. I just came back from Vietnam. Like I, I went and, and spent time in the market and it was never going to be what Gardner said it was going to be. Never was going to be what we thought it was going to be. But the thing that I did believe was it was going to be around this work from anywhere coupled with security, right? Which is a different change from what we were doing at the time, right? Like we had to think differently about it. And I think that, you know, going back to the board at the end of 17 and pitching, hey, I think we need to think about this differently. And let's talk about like what that does for us. I think we need to be more software than service. We have to press on, press on this. And I just, I think that at that point they didn't agree, right? Which is okay. That happens so often with, you know, entrepreneurs and investors and you bought into a thesis, the thesis is this, right? And then if you're you know, looking at the market, I think you said something on the podcast this morning with Hardik, because like the business we start is often the business that's not at the end. Something like that, I'm paraphrasing Jeffrey, right? Like, and I believe that to be true. And like, I, that was my moment of going, this is not going where we thought it was going to go, but it can still use the, all the assets, right, to become something that's more truly around the work from anywhere than we were at on the mobile side. And we need a bend of security that we didn't have. And if you think about what's happened in the, managed, the MSP managed security market, oh my God, <laughs> that has been such a good market from, you know, end of 17 to now. It's with its own challenges, right? But I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been different. Anyway, so, but in that scenario, it's like, okay, so then if, if that's true and that's where the, you know, our shareholders, our business partners want to continue to take the business, I'm not the right person for it. Like somebody else needs to do this because this business needs to be operated differently because I want to still go build and do something. This isn't the, the thing that I want to continue to go do. It's a very hard emotional moment for, for a founder to walk away from a business. Um, but it also, you have to sometimes, again, recognize that it has seasons and the season that it's in is different than the season that I want to be in. So now it's time to you know, figure out that transition. And I've coached so many entrepreneurs since then, like with all kinds of empathy through this process. Right? It's like, <laughs> even when you sell the business, and I was fortunate uh, enough along the way to, you know, got coached early on that you have the opportunity to do secondary and take, you know, some capital out along the way, you should do that. And I would, I've shared that story with lots of entrepreneurs because your exit might not be, you know, clean from the standpoint of there's cash on the other side of it. But if you've actually done well to position yourself in secondary along the way, then, then it's less of that initial financial impact. Because it still may be another five years before that business ever has a financial exit. And I still have capital tied up and everything else, right? But that's okay. Because again, I have to think about it, that as a longer ter term piece of the portfolio. So as you kind of navigate that transition and turn your lens towards your own future, how do you approach it? You know, what, what are the ideas you're exploring? What are the, the yeah. things that, that are exciting you at that point? Well, the best advice I, I got, um, you know, there's lots of transition coaches out there, executive coaches, but I, I got a great one. His name's John Drury. And so I called John, said, here's what I'm at. I'm transitioning. Uh, John's done a lot of work with EO, YPO type of, you know, founders and transition because if people sell their businesses and and I had a conversation, I was coaching one of my clients and he's got an opportunity to sell his business. And I'm like, what are you going to do after you sell it? Like you're 40 years old, you're going to sell it. You're going to have enough money to be comfortable, but now what do you do? <laughs> right? And so there's a really a moment because we always think about the build, the scale, the exit, and then what, right? And then it is, it is really kind of a redefinition when you've had so much of your life kind of poured into something that you're no longer a part of. So John was great with, for me because we went through this whole set of exercises uh, but at the end of the exercise was really a decision filter. You'll appreciate this. We call mine because you have to name it because all important things have names. Mine was called an impact filter. 
because part of my, my, my longevity play was I just wanted to continue to figure out how to create impact. Um, and so it, you come up with your non-negotiables, the things that you're not going to do anymore. One of mine was I had, you know, traveled so much uh, for Vox. I didn't want to travel like very, very limited travel. So I had to think about that right as I went to build something and then really get down to, you know, is it is, you know, what drives your passion? Right. And so for me, it is the growth side of things. I, I loved working with you know, growth entrepreneurs, but there are plenty of good businesses that want to grow two percent a year. And they should, right? That's but but that's not that's not for me, right? That's not what, what gets me excited, gets me passionate, and, and drives me. So we came up with these non-negotiables. We came up with these kind of uh, things that I wanted to see myself. Talked about kind of like what stage and age would you actually retire? And this was a this was the first time I actually understood this because for so long, Jeffrey, I'd, I would sit down with our financial planner, my wife, and he'd go, "Okay, so what age are you going to retire?" And I literally become like full of anxiety. Because I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to I'm going to sit on a beach and medicate. Am I going to play golf? Like, what, what am I going to do? Right. And so at some point working with John, he's like, well, what if you didn't retire? You just did things differently. And I was like, is that an option? We can. <laughs> he's like, yeah. I said, Chris, plenty of people still coach, advise. Like they just choose differently what level they're going to do and who they do it for. And it was that actual understanding of what do most people want? And there's experiences, the freedom of choice, right? So we were then set upon to design it such that I could understand my freedom of choice and what age and stage would I be in as those choices became uh, more opportunities for me to think about making those, you know, those, those uh, decisions. So that, that became this thesis um, that we created that it was like, look, I think I want to advise and coach and I want to actually find some companies to invest in and feel feel like not only the capital is at, at play and, and working hard, um, but that I can help them make a difference in their journey. Um, so that was the initial thesis of it. I didn't know what the advisement meant, Jeffrey, because I was like, people call you all the time, so we'd be on the board of advisors, and sure you can, but most of the time there's really no, you know, little to no income that's, a, that's generated from it, right? And so still raising a family, I'm not in a position where I'm not going to have income. So you have to figure out, like, well, what does that mean? And through folks like Aaron Grossman and others that had done the EOS thing, they're like, well, there's a whole community out there, these EOS implementers that they, they come in, they help companies, obviously get compensated for it, and you can go about it. So I said about, I think I talked to 30 EOS implementers in a very short period of time. I talked to 50 executives because I love data and started to catalog, like, what's this whole thing look like? Is it, is it, could it be for me as part of that advising role that I wanted to have for companies? which that set me upon the uh, joining the EOS implementer community in the end of 2018. And, and EOS is the, the entrepreneurial operating system. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of, again, we were talking about business operating systems earlier, right? And they're so similar in their nature. Um, and most of these folks that wrote something, you know, uh, Gino Wickman, uh, I think he studied under Vern Harnish for a while. Vern studied under somebody else. Like they're all kind of and they always have a take in, a, in a, a very specific place that they put it. And the EOS operating system has kind of got its sweet spot, in my opinion, you know, from like 10 employees, really about to 250. Uh, some people might say 500, but I've seen it really be effective up to about 250 people. But there's, again, there's all these different pieces of parts, like I mentioned, Lynchianis a, a little bit earlier. So pursuing, you know, the, the EOS uh, consulting kind of approach, I, I'm really curious how you know, kind of following your own model of like where you can extract, you know, things under the umbrella and free them to, to be something larger, more impactful, uh, where, where the path with 90 kind of converges and, and how those two things come to, to mesh Yeah, and, and what, what 90 is. So I also want to say, cause the, you, you could say, well, Chris, if you, if you did something like advantage Lencioni and all the stuff you did at Vox, why didn't you just go back to do that again? And the reason is because you need a product. Like the, the, what EOS has done well is they productized it, right? And they created a community of people out there helping implement and do those types of things. So it was like, gosh, you can, you can have some definition and some credibility when you start to have the conversation. Otherwise, it's just kind of Chris's approach to operating systems and how's that going to land? <laughs> it's a little harder, right? But to say, hey, this is a system that's been you know, implemented 10,000 times by all these people, you probably read the books, you know, whatever the case is, right? So there's credibility. Credibility is required to get to trust. Trust is required to get to the agreement to let me actually help help you in the situation itself. So that's why I didn't, I didn't try to invent the own operating system. It's like, hey, look, someone's already done this before. They've done it well. 
let's just go down that path and use it. But my getting back to my original thesis of advising and investing and, and uh, you know, kind of been in some other companies was if I'm going to do this, I'd like, there's got to be a tool set, right? This whole coaching thing's interesting, but there has to be software that allows it to happen. So that set me upon my journey to go find software that was related to the operating system. And hence the, uh, at that time, 90 was called Traction with an X, a kind of a play on obviously the, the Traction book from, uh, from the US side. And then there was a, another company called Traction Tools. Um, but both of those organizations, uh, well, eventually Traction became 90 after it got a license to use the trademark terms from uh, EOS Worldwide. So I went to spend time with both companies, ended up spending more time with 90. Uh, Mark Abbott, who's, the, who's the, the founder of that organization, he's a product-led person. And for me, if you, if you focus on product first versus sales, right, then you can actually figure out sales. But if you focus on sales first and then product, it's typically a mess. It's been my experience, right? So love founders that actually they're, they're, they're obsessing just about their product continually and not just giving the, you know, giving the users what they ask for, but understanding what they need and then understanding how to scale that, that software. And Mark is one of, those, one of those founders. So I think when I met him, we, they were probably like 30 or 40,000 MRR. It's going back ways. This is you know, 2019. So I, I first became an advisor to that business and then an investor and then in 2020, beginning of it, it was really kind of those moments where the company needed more, uh, more support. And one of the things that I've been, you know, post Fox, especially in, in talking to people, is this whole opportunity for capital efficient uh, builds. Like, how do you build these companies differently? One of the things that I've disagreed with lots of VCs is like, you take money and then out of the gates, they, all, they press upon you, how fast can you spend it? Right. And it's like, I don't think that's the, I mean, I understand the leverage that you're trying to create. But if you don't need a full-time CFO, don't take a full-time CFO. If you can't really afford to have a person in this full-time position, figure it out fractionally. And so Mark and I were really aligned around that, that approach, especially as the early stages of, of 90 we were building. And so that really, I took on the fractional CFO role and eventually took on fractional channel sales role, right? And helping build those things out. And I could do those things in, in kind of real time because I was using the software in my coaching practice, right? It was, it was a natural kind of layover to the things I wanted to do things I wanted to be involved in. Yeah, no, I love that it, it, it's an entrepreneurial endeavor that really is in service of other entrepreneurs. What does the, the product look like and feel like? What, what yeah. is the actual solution? So let's go back to concepts, tools, and disciplines, right? Concepts are the books that you're reading, right? The tools they will typically put out there in a PDF, right? It's going to be a four quadrant mental model. And they'll be like, hey, Jeffrey, you write some things in this box and that box, right? And you're going to be like, that was really cool. And then like, okay, now what do you do with it? Where's the discipline come out, the action to take? Well, that's where the software comes in, right? It's like both the visibility layer, the transparency, the KPIs we talked about earlier, even the vision side, where are your core values? Like people ask about culture and it's like, well, culture's got really two main drivers. It's got the rituals, the things that you do and, the, and really the frequency you do them. And then it's the artifacts, the things that you create that remind us of the culture that we desire, right? And so the software is an enabler of those things both the rituals, the meetings that we have, and then obviously the artifacts, because it takes a digital flavor of those things that you're going to put in front of everybody in the company. So when we make sure that we can drive the culture at scale. So it's really the enabler of it. And so 90 is a, it's a configurable operating system software. We obviously have a license with EOS, but we still have people in there who are running scaling up, right? They're running Pinnacle. They're running all these, uh, and sometimes they're running back to my Vox days, amalgamation of this stuff. Right where they don't they don't they love they love what you know EOS does in this area, but they also love the flywheel and hedgehog, right? And you know the the EOS approach and most of these things you'll hear people use terms like EOS pure, which is great if that's what you want. But there's plenty of people who then extend beyond EOS and they're looking for other tools or maybe just a to totally different tool set. So the the software itself is an enabler of those business operating systems, depending upon which flavor that you're actually trying to put inside your organization. And in, in this context, I'll ask the question again, your own question, <laughs> you know, what, what does success look like here? How do you know that you've achieved, you know, the impact that you're trying to with, with this organization? Yeah. So, so this is one of the things that Mark and I have aligned around, right? Like, so if you ask him that question, he's not saying a billion dollars, right? He's not, he is truly, and, and we're aligned here, we're chasing as much impact as possible. I mean, just, we share our data pretty openly. So, you know, we're, Today, we're almost 100 team members. We've got 6,300 companies in the system, 93,000 paying users, 160,000 users overall in 28 countries. And we're, we are looking to continue to grow and build this business for the kind of the impact of the entrepreneur community, but in general, right, to help. You know, we believe that 
work is something that you should love to do. And I know we've, we've had this debate with lots of people when we say that because they don't believe it. But if people are in the pursuit of being the best you know, version of self, we think we can help them do that at work and actually enjoy and hopefully love what they do. And they feel safe and they feel those things. And we can't do that for them, but we think we can help help that and aid that that whole process by giving software, you know, that allows people, those entrepreneur leaders, right, to 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 go out and do the things they want to do. I mean, you know, look, if you ask me, kind of like, what's my mandate? How will I know I did it well and did it right at the end? I want to really believe that I helped leaders build great organizations, right? And you can build one great organization by yourself, or you can figure out how to help right now sixty three hundred organizations be better versions. And that's what we're trying to do. You know, we brought on Insight Partners uh, in August of 2021 as our as our Series A VC. So they invested $20 million in the organization in August of, of 21. That capital efficiency is still really important to us, Jeffrey. I mean, you know, we've grown to the place where we're just a little over 1.1 million in MRR, and we still have you know 16 million plus in the balance sheet. So we think you know, if you look at that capital efficiency, the dollar invested to the dollar created, we're still kind of doing really well. Our Net revenue retention rates 135%, our, you know, our churn 7% annually. So I think that we're still, you know, instrumenting this business quite well along the way. But we're chasing, you know, will we take a company public? Most likely. That's what Insight would like us to do at some point in time. Uh, we don't have a time frame to it. I do, you know, I, I'd like to comment. I think I agree with like, I think it was Hardik or maybe it was Ray or, or even you. It was like, you think about building the business from one round to the next. And you know, for us, we plan that accordingly. We like to have two years of cash on the books, operating cash on the books when we go out to raise. I and mean, you know, we think we've done some things interesting. We're having conversations. Obviously, insights. You know, we'll lead our next round. Um, but lots of other, you know, kind of the, the larger, the Tiger Globals, the K ones, right of the world, to continue to, to help us grow the organization. Wow, that's, that's incredibly exciting. I feel like I don't know. Ninety is is a little under the radar. <laughs> you know, I. I, how, how do you think about the brand and like talent and recruitment and, you know, the, the kind of, I don't know, the, the Cleveland, the proximity component to the, yeah. to the whole equation? So we, we have we have probably six employees in Cleveland, but we don't have more probably in any of the markets. Like uh, Mark has a has a house in Atlanta. So I think he's got probably six employees there. We've got he also has a house in Salt Lake because he goes back and forth. We probably have six employees there. Right. But otherwise, the hundred are distributed all over the place. Um, and that's the way we think about, you know, we're a work from anywhere organization and we're not looking to build offices. We're looking to kind of build hubs of people interacting together. We're trying to find all the talent in the right place. You know, we we have really, you know, we're about to release kind of a whole new brand strategy in, in January. So you'll see kind of that. But we're also, you know, back when I first worked at McMaster Car Supply Company out of college, you know, they're a multi-billion dollar family owned organization that most people don't know about. And, you know, we want people to know about 90, but we're also not going to go, you know, kind of maybe one time to me was, you know, if the will doesn't surface, it doesn't get harpooned. Um, so it's not for us about just putting billboards around airports. It's really putting the marketing, the effort in the right place to have the right impact that we want. So you'll see plenty on, on the LinkedIn side for us from hiring because we've been doing a lot of it. But we, you know, put ourselves you know, into the communities where if you ask EO people about 90, they'll know. If you ask Vistage about 90, they'll know. So we go and put ourselves in the communities that we want to be part of, that we both have our clients in, but it's also on a recruitment side, we put ourselves into those communities as well. So it's very hopefully intentional in what we do and how we put our brand in the market. I won't say you'll never see airport billboards for us because it could happen at some point, but it's just not <laughs> what we're doing, right? It's not, that's not who we are. Yeah. So, so how now, you know, having gone through this exercise, thinking about your, your own future, do, do you think about choice and allocation of your time amongst different different projects at, at this point? Um, it's a constant battle. <laughs> it really <laughs> is, right? I mean, it's a battle. And, and my wife is really good about reminding me of, of, the, of the commitment side of things, meaning that there's, it's easy to commit. Like I get inspired, right? I'll meet an entrepreneur and they'll ask me for help and I'll be like, oh my God, that'd be awesome. I love what you're doing. I want to support you. Yes, I'll be on your board. And then you sit back and you're like, oh my God, that's that's another how many hours that you have to go figure out, right? And to, to, to honor the request and to do it well. It's it's a constant battle. I, I, I struggle at times with, you know, should I be putting more time into 90, right? Versus the, the work that we do at Impact Architects. And part of the challenge there is I still love what we do in a session room. I mean, the, the, the entrepreneurial energy that gets created when we're coaching clients, you know, in these full day sessions and annuals right now, right now we're doing two day annuals is incredible. I mean, it's the, the amount of change and impact that you feel 
right? Not that you did it, like you help people find their way to it. And that's the, that's the appreciation to be in the room when it happens, right? Versus kind of like building great software. Yes, want to do that too, but I can't, I don't want to lose the opportunity to be in the room when it happens and feel like we're making a difference at, at that level, but also the level of the software. So I'm still kind of riding that way. I split probably, you know, three quarters or three fifths of my time is at 90. Then the other, other two is typically in a session room coaching clients. And, you know, Impact Architects is and now we've got five coaches. So you, you recognize some of the names. So Jim Havlin was joined me probably in 19. Meg Mayhew joined in 2020. She also leads our people architects business. John Carpenter from the Able side and Vox Mobile side joined in April. And then recently, Gerald Hetrick came on as uh, to manage our SaaS practice at Impact Architects. So the good news is I think we're, we're building you know, kind of a really good firm that can go. We like to refer to it as a growth advisory firm. It's not just, a, you know, yes, we do operating system work like EOS, but we're also making sure that we're helping organizations do, do more at all different levels, like the people side of the equation, the growth side of the equation, operating, those types of things. I want to ask and see if there are any others, because you, you mentioned one where, you know, you maybe disagree with the conventional company building wisdom that maybe is prescribed from VCs, but are there other areas where you've, through your own experience, come to, you know, an intuition that that maybe goes against what what is kind of pushed as best practice? Well, here, here's one of my favorites, and, and I've had this argument, uh, especially in enterprise sales more than anything else, is we're going to go find a person and we're going to hire that person in the market with a book of business, put that in air quotes, and they're going to come on. And that's how we're going to hit this hockey stick growth. We're going to drop them in all the NFL cities around the country, and that's going to work. And I've never seen it work. Not one time has it worked. Now, it could work to a varying degree because you get lucky. The person doesn't have a non-compete and they steal business from their prior place of service, right? which seems like a really <laughs> taking kind of thing to do, right? But it, it's, you know, it, I just haven't seen it work. And it's an impatient move and often comes with someone taking capital because they're trying to figure out how to how to really accelerate the system versus leaning into the, the building in those markets, right? Leaning into the, the harder work of, of like, we have to seed the market. We have to know... You know, we have to do all the top of the funnel work the right way to pull it through. And we have to be realistic about the acceleration of how that comes out. So that like, hey, we're just going to go hire a bunch of salespeople with books of business. And they're going to borrow them from the previous place they worked and pull them over to us. I don't know. It just never sits well or right with me. And I haven't seen it work. But it gets played a lot. I mean, it's uh, been in those rooms when it happened. When they I, say, I've definitely heard that, heard that one. It me crazy. <laughs> and I, under, I just think what they're solving for, because it's a lot of work to seed a market remotely. We did this a lot at Vox. We would seed markets remotely. It means you had to fly into them, get them to a customer base, and then hire the local salesperson, right, to actually start to really run that. That's, that's a different approach, and it, it's, uh, it's challenging versus just we're going to go hire, <laughs> hire a bunch of expensive account executives who, unfortunately, most of those folks have made a living at changing companies. They're good at it, which is unfortunate to the business because it doesn't, I haven't seen it yield the results. Well, I, I really appreciate your whole perspective on, on leadership and culture. And I kind of want to just leave a little space to, you know, are, are there things that you think we should talk about here that we haven't touched on yet um, that, that you, you know, find very important uh, in, in reflecting on the, the work that you've done? Yeah. So, so team, let's talk about team health for a minute. Um, it's yeah. one of the, I love, I love like in the annuals, we spend at least half a day on team health. Right. And we talk about, you know, the, the hard work of team building is around people being vulnerable enough. You know, the, you can go to like Renee Brown's work, right? Like in the vulnerability, if you give ourselves the space to it, often what people will do is they'll, they'll call that the softer side of it. And they, they'll blow by those moments, right? They won't let people unpack their humanity in front of the others. Cause it's hard work to do. It's emotional work to do. But if you do that work, then the rest of the work becomes clear because you and I now have a bridge to the conversation because you have empathy because you understand me better and I understand you. And I can have a more direct civil conversation because we like healthy conflict. And every business growing needs healthy conflict. But so often this has been put to the wayside. And there's, I think we were seeing some more movement by uh, the generation that's coming in. Like a lot of family businesses I've come into, Jeffrey, you know, the, the preceding, you know, parents of those businesses do not have a lot of empathy. They have built those mm. businesses and they've been more transactional in their nature and command and control. I'm not saying all, but a lot of them. And then you've got this next generation of leader that are coming through the family business who, who have experienced that. They've seen the people not really feel like they, it's worth fighting for, right? The people that are taking those paychecks and they're trying to make a difference. And that really begins at the leadership team and being vulnerable with each other and coming through these team health exercises. And 
uh, kind of open each other up a bit, right. To, to go into it. And yeah, it's, I don't think it's, you know, it's practiced better by some than others, but it, there's gotta be space and time for it. And once someone's experienced that being done, that's not just kumbaya holding hands. That's not what we're talking about. Right? Like <laughs> it's not trust falls off the back of a whatever, right? Like this is real work, right. With, with kind of real instructional discipline to, to do it and make sure you bring the human in the room every time so that we can have as you know productive interactions as possible. Right. Well, I mean, on the flip side of it, the the consequences, the the implications of of not doing it are you know, disengagement from your team. I think. Yeah, and one of the things I've been doing in workshop fashion that I am passionate about. So at ninety, one of our BHAGs is we want to be one of the most trusted organizations in the world. That's a BHAG, right? And so everything we do is designed around trust. We have lots of data from lots of people but we have to make sure that they trust us. And so we started asking our questions about how do you measure trust? And so Mark, this is Mark Abbott, the founder actually went and, and uh, spent a lot of time on this and started kind of blogging on it a while back. This is kind of preceding the pandemic. And so you, there's lots of ways to think about trust. Uh, even Brene Brown has a whole framework for it as well. But we tried to keep it simple because our customers like simplicity. And so we came up with a trust score, like literally we can score trust. And so the way we do it is like, even like the two of us could score each other on trust right now. We think it has three components. The first is character. So either you trust my character or not. Now, sometimes it's just you were introduced by somebody else and I extend you trust of character based upon that introduction. I had that actually happen on a call today. Somebody introduced me to somebody else and immediately you could tell I was being trusted because of that interaction of the person's character beyond. Now they have to start to assess my character as well. We're gonna have that exchange. And if you don't have character trust, it's either, it's binary, it's either one or zero right? And we know zero times anything is zero. So it doesn't matter. This game's over. The trust score is zero, right? If I can't get it beyond, you know, giving a one to that. So that's my character side. And then I got to go into competency and competency is in our relationship, whether it's personal, professional, we have some expectations of that relationship. And you're going to try to judge me on how competent am I in delivering those expectations back. That's why we love clarity in relationships. Like if it's casual, that's great. But, it, you know, on, on a personal side, it's like, you've got those folks that are ride or die in your relationship. And if you wake up one day and you need somebody to pick up, and get, you know, get there to you, you know that they're going to do that for you, right? But you've set that degree of relationship in place and you have you have 100% competency, belief, and they're doing those things for you, right? And work is the same way. That's why we love accountability, responsibility type charts is because we can set those relationships, understand your five to seven roles and responsibilities and the metrics. And we go, okay, so now I'm going to score you from, you know, zero to 100 on how do we think how competent you are. Right. And if you have no competency in my life, you're back to zero, zero times again is we're, we're there. Right. But yep. otherwise, we're going to go ahead and we're going to put a number on that. Let's call it 90 for argument's sake. Right. And so we give ourselves a 90 on the competency side. And then finally, we move to connection and connection is my favorite. And this is where the pandemic started to fall apart for us because it has three aspects of three components to it. The first one is how frequent do you and I connect? Right. So if we don't see each other for, you know, I don't know, six months, we don't feel very connected and we probably don't feel as trusting because I don't really know where you're at right now, right? So the, the first one's frequency. The next one's duration. If every time we see each other, we see each other frequently, but it's five minutes and it's sports news and weather, that's not going to be very good, right? Like we don't feel very connected. Like I see you, but I don't see you very long. And then the third part is depth, right? So I've got frequency, duration, and then depth. And depth is, you know, beyond sports and news and weather, like how open will I be with you? This goes back to those team health exercises. Will I be yep. vulnerable with you? Will I say the honest truth to you? Will I do that, put myself out there, right, to be questioned, to be challenged? And if I do that, then I can actually get the depth side of that. And so frequency, duration, depth got really challenged in the pandemic because one of the things we were told about this along the way is this two-dimensional scenario that you and I are having right now because we're not in a room together hurts the depth, right? People still want to feel that. So the scoring at times, because we would, we would go back and try to understand how they got to the score they got to, we were really finding that connection piece with the frequency, duration, and depth starting to fail. So we use this tool of, of trust scoring. So especially as organizations have gone like ours at 90, as we start to go work from anywhere, right? You can be yeah. 100 people and all over the place. How do we think about trust? And how do we score it? And this is hard work, by the way. This is one of those team health we don't do right away, but eventually we do. Because I have to yeah. put a number in front of you, then we're going to talk about it. And it's not about the number being right or 100. It's about us having the dialogue about why we feel it is where it's at. And it could be we're both comfortable. It's an 85 overall. You and I can say, hey, that's just pretty good for what we expect of our relationship. Or you put it as an 85, I put it as a 60. 
clearly something in this, this trust side of our relationships not working, right? We got to figure out if we want to, how do we make that better? So the trust sure. workshops have been a ton of fun and uh, we, we'll have some software that's going to help on this soon. Uh, I think it's coming, hopefully the assessment side, hopefully will be next year, maybe Q2. So we can not start letting organizations in, inside, right? Start to measure trust across the organization. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, because it, it's, it it's hard to quantify trust. It's so hard, right? <laughs> and, and I've got people go, how do you know those three things are right? I'm like, we don't know that it's right, but it's good enough to make progress and to have the dialogue. And that's really what we want, right? It's not, I don't want to use that measure to win the game, but I do want to use that measure to win and proceed into the, the progression of our relationship. Right. And that, and it captures kind of a, a static moment in time. I'm curious if there is a way that the kind of nature of trust being built in drops and lost in buckets, as Kevin Plank says, kind of like yeah. the, I don't know how to frame that picture, but I think that's probably one of the best analogies. Like how does the dynamic nature of trust, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, because, so it's a forever work. It's not like just because you were an 85, we were an 85 tomorrow, but something happens tomorrow. Like I don't live up to my agreement with you to do something that's going to affect your level because it's going back to competency. I didn't do what I said I was going to do. Right. And so this is not a static thing. It is a moment in time. And so I think it's okay to, to, to start to think about capturing some of that. But now you have a language and a framework to come back to me when I didn't do that. You're like, hey, man, I know we said 85 last time, but here's what's happened. And the competency in our relationships affecting trust. I need to give you some feedback. It's like, all right, I can take that, right? Like it's data-driven. We like to say that, you know, you can do, if you're, if what you're about to tell me is three things, it's truthful, it's specific, and it's positive, then I can receive it. Truthful mean it is true. You have data, it's, it happened, right? Specific is you're not using gen, you know, generalities. You're not saying always, forever, never, right? Those are trigger words for people because they're not true. It's not always, it's not never, it's not forever, right? But you can be specific with me. And then when you're positive, I can hear it. If you're negative, I'm going to shut down on it. So we, we you kind of coach in those moments to like think about TSP. And then I think we have an opportunity to have that trust conversation or whatever conversation we're going to need to have. It's giving, giving each other feedback from it. So it is dynamic. It's, it's a forever work. And, you know, let's, let's figure out how to use software to, <laughs> to communicate it. Yeah. So I will ask you the, the closing question, which is pretty unrelated to everything we've talked about, but it's for your favorite hidden gem in Cleveland. So not necessarily your favorite thing, but for something that other folks may not know about that, that you love. Well, so we love this. Um, we love this so much before the pandemic. So it might not be as hidden anymore because the, the park system here, I think hopefully most people understand how amazing it is, but it's amazing. Incredible. It is just amazing. And we were fans long before we, you know, we've got a pretty active family. We like to do you know, triathlons and, you know, run and bike and all that kind of fun stuff. And the park system just is so wonderful to support that. And then obviously with the pandemic, it became our outlet. Like we don't sit at home very well, but we could go be in the park system. And we discovered as many as possible. I know probably some other people did that too, but it's like, for us, it's like, there's, we kind of knew our kind of our, our circle, right. Of the park system. And then we went and expanded it out, uh, especially during the pandemic with, the, with our kids and our dog, just to go hike. Right. And just go be outside and just take it all in. Yeah. It is just, I mean, uh, I, don't, I, get, I don't know if it's hidden, but it, to me, you still go out and we see less and less people now because the pandemic's over, but it's still amazing. Uh, they've done such a great job on it. It is my own as well. Well, Chris, this was, this was incredible. I, I learned so much. Thank you um, for, for coming on and, and sharing your, your story. Yeah, no, I appreciate the time. Thank you and love the work that you're doing. I think, you know, I've, if I got to choose a title given to me at some point in time, if someone said, hey, describe Chris, I would be really, you know, outside of like the impact things we talked about, I would like to be considered a good storyteller and not, not a story as in, you know, look at the size of the fish or whatever, but as a story is that somebody could actually take, spend time with others, break concepts and experiences down and share. And even when they're not your stories, the, you know, the value of that is to be able to replicate and share other people's stories along the way too. So I think you're doing a great job of, of helping tell the stories for us here in the, in the region, especially on the entrepreneurial side. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for telling good stories. <laughs> if, uh, if folks had anything they wanted to follow up with you about um, or, or get in touch, what would be the, the best way for them to do so? Well, LinkedIn's always probably an easy one, right? It's uh, just Chris with a K, Snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R. Um, so that's probably easy. Also, it's my emails are easy. So it's chris at 90.io um, and then chris at impactarchitects.io. Those are two places to find me on email. Awesome. 
Well, thank you again, Chris. Yep. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. 